Um, and I was saying it's good to, uh, you know, sing about the atonement, but oftentimes, you know, I find that as we sing about these truths of God's word, we don't always know what some of these words mean that we sing about. I mean, let's just kind of give a test here. Um, don't tell me what you think it means, but just by a raise of hands, how many here know what the word impute means? Okay, a few. How many here know what the word uh, propitiation means? Okay. How many here know what the word pardon means? Okay. So we sing about these things. I mean, sing about the blood of Jesus washing away our sins. You know, is there really some kind of, uh, you know, shower head with blood coming out of the blood of Jesus that literally washes away your sins? You know, what, what do these things mean? And so we, we've been going through the uh, Old Testament shadows of the atonement. Last week we talked about the extent of the atonement. Uh, but starting this week and next week, we're going to talk about the New Testament uh, doctrine of the atonement. And you can see, as I, ha- as I had before you, I-, I have a lot of words we're going to go through today. And then next week, we'll go through some more words. All these words have relation to the atonement. And, and what we're going to get from this study, not only from the Old Testament shadows we looked at, and from the extent of the atonement, and all these words we're looking at now, uh, we're going to get the doctrine of the atonement from the whole counsel of God. Okay, and uh, you're going to see after next week, the last uh, week of the atonement, which will be the first week in October, I'm going to talk about the different theories of atonement and uh, see where some of them fall short, some of them have good points, um, and see where they're misdefining words, some of them. And just I'm just giving you, you can see these words here. I, I didn't give you the definitions of, of the words. I want you to write those in for yourself. That's why I left a blank space there. So I gave you the, you know, whether it's a noun or a verb, I gave you what the Greek word looks like. You won't be able to pronounce that until I tell you how to pronounce it for most of you. Um, and then um, in the blank space there, after it tells you what verses we're going to look at, where that word's found, we're going to, you're going to write down next to that what the definition is. So you're, you have some notes here for yourself, but you're still going to be involved. I'm not doing all the work for you. You're going to get involved in it right down for yourself. Okay, so let's turn to Matthew 20 and verse 28 first. Let's look at this word ransom. Now we came upon this word ransom several times last week because we looked at the word many and all. Uh, this rant, word ransom is used in those things. Now when you think of the word ransom, you know typically what people think of is like, I don't know, maybe they picture some ungodly movie they watched a long time ago where uh, maybe some child was taken captive by some group of criminals and, and then some guy had to come in there and, and free, free the child or, or maybe there was some kind of uh, ransom that was need to be paid. So you think of the word ransom, you, you automatically think money, right? You think money has to be paid to the, and who is the money paid to when you pay a ransom? The criminal, right? The person who, who took the, uh, the other person captive, uh, there is a, a money that's paid to that person to release that person to the party who paid the money, okay? And this is why, uh, you know, a lot of times in in a later early church, there's some people who have this doctrine of the atonement because who, who is the enemy in this scheme of, of the ransom? Who is the criminal? Satan's the criminal. He's the one that kind of has us captive. Now, we know that you know these, these analogies only go so far because is he holding us captive against our will? No, our free will's involved. You know, we, we, we freely became captives of, of Satan in, in doing his will. And we know that if we're doing God's will, we're not doing Satan's will. And if we're not doing God's will, we're doing Satan's will. 
You're either for him or you're against him. You know, there's no there's no gray area there. <clears throat> so we all we, we think of that in the early church. A lot of them in the later early church, you know, fourth century, uh, they started to formulate this doctrine where uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a literal payment to Satan. Because when we're talking about we're talking about ransom here, we're talking about payment to the enemy, right? And and when when someone a ransom is paid, what happens to the person who is in captivity? They're set free. They're, they're delivered, right? Just like the uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament were delivered from Egypt. And so a lot of them, they, they begin to think this. But, but really, let's just look through some of these, these passages here. I don't think we're going to see that there. When we see this word ransom used, we're not going to see a payment to Satan found there. That's kind of read into it you know, later on in the church. So let's see what Matthew 20, 20, let's look in verse 27. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave or servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So is there is there any money involved here? No, no money involved. But what is involved? What was the price? What was the ransom price? The life of Jesus. That was the ransom price. The life, there's no mention of blood here, but we're going to get. We'll see blood a lot later on, and we'll see that blood. What it really means when it says Christ shed His blood for us, it meant His life. It's not as if Jesus could, you know, some of us go to the doctor and we get a little prick on the finger, a little blood comes out. They do the test from it. Ladies who are pregnant will have to go through that a lot, and it doesn't really feel good on the tip of your finger. But you know, a little blood will come out, and but Christ couldn't have just pricked His finger and put it on the, on the altar, and that would have been enough. You know, when when the Old Testament sacrifices were were killed. They didn't just take a little bit of blood from the goat. The, the, it cost the goat his life. And, it, and that's what it means. We're talking about, because the life of the, the flesh is in the blood. You know, Leviticus 17.11 talks about that, and Hebrews 9.22. Those are the two verses I gave you at the beginning. Remember, that are the cruxes for the Old Testament and New Testament doctrine of the atonement. Okay, so it cost him his life. That was the ransom price. His life. And so when we look at the word ransom here, I don't want you to think, as the, you know, maybe the American mindset here that money was paid to an enemy to free the captive. What I want you to understand here is it's the price of release. There, you're being delivered. The Greek word is lutron there. And in death, you see the word ransom. It's a noun and it's found in Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45. It's the price of release. So it costs Christ his life to deliver you not only from God's wrath, but also to deliver you from your sins. Okay? So I don't want you to think that, you know, some of the other church got a little astray on this issue, uh, that somehow, as if God owes Satan anything, or if Satan's in control of it, as if he deserves anything, uh, that as if, you know, you kind of see this a little bit, some of you may have seen the movie called um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, okay, Chronicles of Narnia, and you'll see a picture of this kind of view of the atonement on there. Where, you know, the lion, Aslan, he's, he's kind of, you know, the young man, I can't remember his name, Edmund, was, was in trouble. You know, he, he broke the law of the land, and, and the person who's representing Satan, the white witch, she's, you know, his life is demanded. Your law, Aslan, demands that his life is to be taken. And Aslan offers his, his life in place, and then Satan and all his, and all his minions are, you know, representative of that. They, they're killing him, they're doing these things to him. And we know that Satan was involved. Because who are the people who really crucified Christ? It was wicked men. He was taken by lawless hands, crucified and put to death. So Satan was involved, but it's not as if 
Satan demanded this of God, or it was offered to Satan for these things. So I want you to, when you picture ransom, I want you to see it just simply cost Christ his life to deliver you from the wrath of God and from the power of sin in your life. Go to uh, 1 Timothy 2.6. Now Mark 10.45, we're not going to go to that. It's the same exact situation. It's a parallel to Matthew 10.28, or 20.28, so we're not going to go there. But go to 1 Timothy 2.6. <clears throat> And it's talking about Jesus here. It says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now we know uh, in order for Christ to be a ransom for you, you must make an application. There must be something you must do in order for this ransom to come about in your life and that the atonement is not automatic for anybody except for those who had already died. Romans 3.25 talks about this. Those who had already died in the past... They were looking ahead to Christ coming in the future, and that atonement was applicable to them because they already had the faith, they already died in the faith. But the people who were alive at that point in time and who would live later on, it wasn't applicable automatically to them until they would come into the world, they repent and trust in Christ as the ransom for their sins. And so we see lutron, we see uh, anti-lutron, those are the two words we have here. So the second definition would be ransom instead of, in place of, in behalf of, okay, so that's First Timothy two six and to Lutron, ransom instead of, in place of, in behalf of, indicating that on that a person or thing is to be replaced by another, instead of or in place of, okay, so indicating that a person or thing is to be replaced by another instead of. Or in place of. So we begin to see now, we saw it cost Christ's life, but now with this new word we see under, that's translated as ransom in 1 Timothy 2.6, we're seeing that a substitutionary atonement here. That instead of you getting what you deserve for your sins, someone is coming in and making a substitution. Okay? Now, I don't think we're going to get to it this week, but maybe a little bit, but it wasn't an exact substitute. It was a sufficient substitute. Okay, because we know what we deserve for our sins is hell. But Christ didn't go to hell. So there's, there's, in the first uh, word for ransom, we see it's the, it cost him his life. The second one is, it's a, there's a substitution going on here now. Okay? Let's go just one verse up, 1 Timothy 2.5. And we're going to the next word here, mediator. Okay? Now you think mediator, you know, with my background, I used to be a sports fanatic, so I kind of just have it in my head still. I, you know, there's times that I, I, I think of mediation. I think of this this uh, athlete who, you know, has a contract with a with a certain organization or or you know a certain team, and uh, they go into dispute as to how much they really should be making, and they bring in a mediator to help solve this dispute, this problem they're having in order to kind of, you know, help this person compromise, help this, and have a, instead of going to court and standing before a judge, there's mediation. And let's face it, if we don't deal with the mediation that God offers through Jesus Christ, who will we stand before? The judge. I mean, we'll be judged. But he's offering before that time comes, before the courtroom is set, before you have to stand before him and give an account for every thought, word, and deed, he's offering mediation. And it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we have these two parties. 
God and sinners. And there's a problem between them. And Christ offers to come between us and solve this issue. Okay? And let's face it. We were, we're the offending party. God is the offended party. You know, so we're the ones who need to be dealt with here. Okay? So he's the mediator. And so the Greek word there is mesotes. And it's a noun. And uh, you see there it means mediator, arbitrator. It's one who mediates between two parties to remove a disagreement or reach a common goal. And if you were to go to like an English dictionary, it would say this. A person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. A go-between. You know, oftentimes you'll see a gospel tract that has, you know, the city of destruction on this side, and you have the kingdom of God on the other side, and there's a, a go-between. What is it in the shape of? Cross. You know, that's, it's a good picture sometimes to have something like that. We so see that Christ is the mediator. Uh, go with the, let's look at a couple more verses. Hebrews 8, 6. I'll tell you, if you really want to understand the Old Testament shadows to, to, most agree and, and understand the New Testament doctrine of the atonement, you can really just read the book of Hebrews. Just read it through over and over and over again. And you'll really get it down. Uh, so Hebrews 8.6, um, I think Paul is a writer of Hebrews. He just got through talking about the old priesthood and what they would have to do and how was the priesthood of, Le- of, of uh, Aaron and Levi. And, um, and then he said that Christ came with a greater uh, priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, which doesn't have a beginning or an end, and it's a greater priesthood. And now he says in Hebrews eight six, <clears throat> but now he Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry, and as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now in Galatians three nineteen and twenty, referring to the old covenant of Moses, the law of Moses. It talks about a mediator there too. And the mediator there was Moses. If you read uh, Exodus 20 and verse 19, he, you know, God tells Moses and all the leaders of Israel to come up to the mountain and they say, no way. We don't want to go up there, Moses. You go up there for us. And see, so Moses was the go-between between God and the people of God. And Jesus is the go-between between God and the people of God those who will become the people of God. So he's a mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. And I'll let you look at the other verses on your own time for that. So Christ is a ransom. It cost him his life. It was an instead of thing, an in place of, and in behalf of thing. There's a substitution involved. He's also a mediator that goes between two parties that have a problem and solves the problem. Okay, let's talk about Redemption. You're going to find that a lot of these words are really synonyms, but you're going to find. Like redemption and ransom are very similar in what they mean and how they're used throughout Scripture. They're almost used interchangeably. The first one is apolutrosis. 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 And it means to release from a captive condition. Sounds similar to Lutron, which is price of release. Or it also means acquittal. 
If someone's acquitted of a crime, does someone come out, someone else come in and pay that fine for him? Does someone come else, else come in and serve the punishment for them? No, when you're acquitted, you're released. You're let go. It's like you're declared not guilty. Okay? And so, apolutrosis, uh, let's look at Romans 3.24. It says, um, talking about sinners here, being justified, and we're not talking about justification this week, that'll be for the next foundation, actually, in salvation, doctrine of salvation, but... We talked about it a little bit last week. Justification simply means that you're declared right before God. So, being declared right before God freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, through the release from a captive condition, through the acquittal that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? That is the grace of God that you're justified freely by. So, God is letting you go, declaring you righteous based upon what Christ did, the redemption that's in Him. You're acquitted you're released from that. Let's go to Ephesians 1.7. And you're going to begin to see some of these words appear in the same verses together. Okay? Like in this verse, we're going to see forgiveness, and we're going to see blood. And we're going to talk about forgiveness here in a few minutes. Um, it says in Ephesians 1.7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. We have acquittal. We have release through his blood. And what does blood mean? Is it talking about a drop of blood? It's talking about what? Life. His life. Through his life. We have acquittal. We have release through his life. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So let's, actually, let's, since we're already here, let's talk about forgiveness now. It's the last word on your list. It'll be on the second page. And we see there's two words uh, translated as forgiveness or forgiving. Uh, and the first one is the one we're talking about. Aphasis. It means forgiveness, remission. You see those words there. And the definition you need to put in that blank there, the act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. The act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. That's the first word under forgiveness. Aphasis. Yeah. Uh, the noun there, and that's the one that's found here in Ephesians 1.7. So the act of freeing from obligation, from guilt, or from punishment. So let's read it with this new definition here. In him we have the release, the acquittal, through his life uh, we have the freeing of guilt and punishment uh, of sins according to the riches of his grace. Because you read these scriptures, you begin to have the proper definitions... Some of you may not have had definitions at all. You're just kind of reading the verses and just kind of going with them. Some of you had maybe wrong definitions. But as you have the right definition, in him we have release through his life, uh, the, uh, the freeing from the punishment or the guilt of sins according to the riches of his grace. Okay? So that's Ephesians 1.7 there. And as we go on, we'll find forgiveness a couple more times here. So going back to redemption, let's go to Colossians 1.14. We're going to see forgiveness again here. We're going to see blood again here. It's almost like the same thing being said in this 
Colossians 1.14 as Ephesians 1.7. In whom, talking about Jesus, we have redemption, which is release or acquittal through his life, um, the forgiveness of sins. And of course, forgiveness, once again, means the act of freeing from punishment or obligation of sins. Okay? So forgiveness and redemption through Christ's life is not the same as Christ paying your fine. Okay? That if someone pays your fine, um, first of all, there's no repentance needed on your part. Okay? If a criminal is in a courtroom and the judge says, okay, it's a $1,000 fine or 30 days in jail. And, uh, you know, your, your dad's merciful on you. He comes in and pays the $1,000 fine. Does the judge require you to repent or serve the sentence? No, he does not. Um, so it's different than what we see here, the release, the forgiveness, uh, the not holding against any longer through his life. Okay, let's go to the second word used for uh, translated as redemption or redeem on your list there. Lutrao, which is a verb. It means to liberate from an oppressive situation. To liberate from an oppressive situation. And Titus 2.14 is the word we're going to use there. Look at there. Now, what do you know? In verse 14 it says, Who gave himself for us. Which is synonymous of giving his blood for us. He gave himself for us. And for us, the words for us, is, is talking about a substitution. A substitution there. Okay? So he gave himself for our sins, uh, for us, that he might redeem us. There's a word, uh, Lutrao, there. Redeem us from every lawless deed. So he's set freeing, he's rescuing us from lawless deeds. He's setting us free from sin. He's rescuing us from sin. And isn't it amazing that people who claim to be saved by the grace of God will say, I'm sinning every day. Are they set free from sin? Are they redeemed from every lost deed? But look, verse 11, this whole passage is about the grace of God that brings salvation. And the whole purpose of that is to redeem us, or one of the purposes that we see here, is to redeem us, to deliver us, to rescue us, to set us free from every lawless deed. Not only the, uh, the committing of it, but actually the punishment and penalty of it. And when you think redemption, I mean, you ladies go shopping a lot. You probably have coupons sometimes. You might have things that says, redeem this at the cash register. The coupons will say that, right? And what does that mean? What are you getting? What are you redeeming? Anybody? You're redeeming money, right? Aren't you, aren't you getting money back that you would have been spending in the first place? So you're getting money back. You're setting free that money from Kroger from uh, Walmart, from Costco, from Whole Foods, you're setting it free from that and giving it back to yourself. Okay, that's what redemption is. You're redeeming that. You're liberating it from an oppressive situation. So you can use it for something else. Okay, First um, Peter one eighteen. It says, uh, knowing that you are not redeemed, there's the word right there, Lutrao, redeemed uh, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless... So what do you redeem from? From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. This is written to Jewish people, the pilgrims of dispersion here. Redeemed from their aimless tradition received from the fathers. What were they redeemed by, though, or with? With the precious blood of Christ. And what does blood mean? It means life. With the life of Christ... 
as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. Now, what does that sound like? Like the Old Testament sacrifices, right? It's comparing it back to that. And so you were redeemed, you were set free, rescued uh, with the precious blood, the life of Christ. As a lamb without blemish, without spot. So he was a sinless lamb. You know, because he's a human being, he's not an animal. He actually could have sinned, but he didn't. He didn't sin. Okay, the third word we have here, exagorazo. That second letter you see there is like an X, like our X. Exagorazo. It means to secure the deliverance of, to deliver, to liberate. To secure the deliverance of, to deliver, to liberate. Galatians 3, verse 13. So, Christ has redeemed us. Galatians 3.13, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So Christ redeemed us, he secured the deliverance of, he delivered, he liberated us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then we're not going to talk about what that means when he became a curse for us. We'll talk about the next week. One of the words, look at next week, is curse. Okay, But he, he delivered us, he secured the liberation uh, of us from the curse of the law. Because if you don't, if you know, if you don't obey the law of the Old Testament completely, you just break it in one part. You're still condemned by that law. And that's the whole point that Paul's making here in Galatians 3, uh, 10 through 14. And in Galatians 4, 5, it says something very similar. Um, to redeem those who are under the law. That we might receive them, might, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we're redeemed, we're liberated, we're set free, we're delivered, uh, from the curse of the law that we may be adopted as sons of God. Okay, reconcile. Go to Romans 5. Okay, so far we've seen that his, his life was the price of the release. Uh, that he, it was instead of and in place of what would have happened to us, it was a substitutionary sacrifice, that he was a mediator that came between two people who have a problem and tried to solve that problem, uh, that he released us, redeemed us, delivered us, set us free, and he rescued us. And in reconcile, we see the first word there is catalogue, and it means the reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. That's the first word under reconcile. The reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. And we see this in Romans 5.11, which says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Through Him we received through Jesus Christ, through His blood, through His life, through His sacrifice on the cross, a reestablished or a broken of a broken relationship with God. He's reestablished that. Okay? And of course he reestablished that through forgiving us of our sins, uh, through being that ransom, through being that redemption and that mediator. He reestablished because there was a problem between us and God, our sins. 
And let's just stay in Romans 5.10, the second word there, katolasso, the second word under reconcile, means the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. The exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. Because we know the Bible says that sinners are enemies of God. They're at enmity with God. And that God is angry with the wicked every day. So we're exchanging that for a friendly relationship. That's why you can make peace through the blood of the cross. (coughs) So you see both forms of reconcile being used in Romans 5.10 and Romans 5.11 and Romans 5.10. This is the second word here. It says, For when we were enemies, (coughs) we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, (coughs) much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, through the giving of his life. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So you see the second use of reconcile there, katalasso. And then go to 2 Corinthians 5. Second <clears throat> Corinthians five and verse eighteen. <clears throat> and in verse eighteen and through twenty, we'll see both of these words used, both the noun and the verb used here in these three verses. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So, who was reconciled here to who? Men to God. There's some views of the atonement, we'll go through this a couple weeks from now, that will say that God is the one who needed to be reconciled to man. That God was so angry, picture a, a father in rage here, a human father in rage, that he just had to take it out on somebody. So the one who needs to be changed is not man because man stays a sinner after he gets saved, right? According to these people, he stays a sinner after he gets saved and the one who needed to change was God. God needed his anger and his wrath of peace, but man didn't need to change anything. God needed to be changed and Christ's atonement changed God, not man. That's a, a view people have of the atonement. But it's not what it says. It says here that God reconciled us to himself. We need to be changed. We're the ones that need to be moved, not him. Uh, you know, the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does God cease hating sin? If God ever ceased hating sin, even if it was in a believer, he would not be righteous. He would not be holy. If anyone doesn't hate sin, they're not holy and they're not righteous. And uh, if, if he keeps people who he says who are his followers, he doesn't deliver them from sin, leaves them sinners, uh, but they're still free, they're still saved, what kind of righteous judge is that? What kind of uh, governor or governmental official would allow someone to continually to go free who just continues to commit the same crimes over and over again? Doesn't sound very just to me. So we're the ones who need to be reconciled to him, not the other way around. This is in verse 19. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not imputing their trespasses to them, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So, now some people who are like Rob Bell, they would take this and, and, and try to promote universalism through this. Because it says, look, um, the world, reconciling the world to himself. But the world does not now stand reconciled. That's why we have the word of reconciliation. If the world was already reconciled automatically to God, we would not have, we would not need the word of reconciliation, and we would not need to be, according to verse 20, ambassadors of Christ pleading to people to be reconciled to God. And so it's just simply talking about he made it available to all. But now as ambassadors, you know, you think about an ambassador, someone from America goes to uh, maybe Iran. He represents America, hopefully, not usually though, to Iran to deal with this issue that's between the two groups. And uh, if the issue was already resolved, he'd have no reason to go over there in the first place. If there was no problem between us and Iran, he, he wouldn't have a reason to go over there and be an ambassador over there. But we know there are problems between God and man, is there not? Even now, most of the world's in wickedness. And it's getting worse and worse. So there's a problem. That's why we go out to places like the uh, Taylor Feet Swift to Destruction concert. You know, we go to the Millstone Arena where all the people are bringing their little children out there to just uh, follow after this Jezebel. And so we go, there's ambassadors, we want them to be reconciled to God, and they need to understand that God is angry with them, that there's a problem between them and God. They may have been taught in, you know, in their buildings today, they may get taught in their buildings today that they're okay with God as they go to these filthy concerts, but they're not okay with God. That's how we go out there to compel them to get right with God. And so there's a possibility for the world, so God, Christ, uh, what God did in Christ is you know, it provides a possibility for reconciling the whole world to himself. The whole reason we go out as ambassadors and plead for, with them to get right with God is so that they, they can actually be reconciled. Okay? So we see these two different words, uh, you know, inter- translated as reconcile. Let's go to <clears throat> Ephesians 2.16. And here in Ephesians 2.16, he's, uh, Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he says that that Christ, and that Christ might reconcile them both, the both are the Jews and Gentiles here, to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. Well, there's two enmities I think he's talking about here, the enmity between Jews and Gentiles and the enmity between those two and God. So through his body, through his death, uh, through what happened on the cross, uh, God is God wants to that that they might be reconciled both to God. Once again, those people to God, not God to those people. Okay? And then one more scripture, Colossians chapter one. <clears throat> Verses twenty and twenty one. And by him, talking about Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Talking about God the Father. By him, Jesus, whether things are on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. Talking about people who used to be enemies of God. What were they enemies by? Their wicked works. So they're still doing wicked works. Are they still enemies or are they, or are they made peace with God now? They're still enemies. But they make peace with God through the blood of his cross or through his life, through his sacrifice. Uh, 
in all things are reconciled to him. They can be. Same thing as, as 2 Corinthians 5. Okay, let's talk about bought now. 1 Corinthians 6.20. Once again, I don't want you to get this picture as if uh, Christ is being paid to Satan or or even to God, because, you know, let's face it, God, uh, you know, we weren't in His possession, so there's no way that He could buy us from God. Uh, so we weren't in His possession. Now, we were under the condemnation of God's law, so in that sense, He might buy us from God, but that's not what it's saying here. It says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 6, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And what was that price you were bought with? life of Christ, or the precious blood of Christ. And the word bought is uh, agarazo. It means to secure the rights to someone by paying a price. To secure the rights to someone by paying a price. To acquire as property. So Christ, when you, you, know, when you become a Christian, you're, you're understanding that you don't belong to yourself anymore. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that he gave his life for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You, you don't belong, you, you need to realize that when someone becomes a Christian, to realize they don't belong to themselves anymore. They, they're, they're not in charge of their life. They're giving their life over to God. He's in charge. You know, he, Christ has secured the rights of you by paying the price with his life. And you're, you're basically his property now. Or as Romans 6 would say, you're a slave to righteousness or a servant of righteousness. No longer a servant or slave to sin. This one chapter later, 1 Corinthians 7, 23 says, You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And then the second Peter 2, 1. We went, talked about this one last week. When we were talking about the extent of the atonement and how Christ's uh, sacrifice was even, even bought people who would become false teachers. But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. So Christ bought these people. He uh, secured the rights to them by paying a price to acquire as a property, and they deny him. They deny the way they've gone that far in their heresy. They'll even deny that Christ bought them. And then Revelation 5, 9 And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy, talking about Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now, the word there is redeem, but the same word translated as both in these other three verses. Okay? That's why I put it down here instead of under redemption. Okay, let's go to the next word. Let's go to purchased, Acts 20 28. <clears throat> Once again, this is just like last week. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we're purchased by the blood of Christ. That was in, and the word there is parapoeo. And parapoeo, the first word of the purchase there, which is, which is found in Acts 20.28, means to gain possession of something, 
to acquire, to obtain, to gain for oneself. So to gain possession of something, acquire, obtain, to gain for oneself. Purchased. So Christ obtained for himself, acquired the church of God through his blood, through his life, through what he did. And then, so that's the verb. Let's go to the noun now in Ephesians 1.14. And this uh, means purchase possession. It says, that which is acquired, parapoiesis, parapoiesis, that which is required, possessing a people that has become God's own possession. That's what this word means, the noun. Found in Ephesians 1.14, which says, who is the guarantee, talking about the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, or the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. There's a word right there. Purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So in some sense, you see the word redemption there, that we're not completely redeemed yet. Because we still have this body we're living in. And we haven't, we haven't persevered to end. We haven't endured to the end. So there's, there's an until. And until then, we only have the down payment, which is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Okay, the word impute. This is going to take a little bit of time. Romans 4. Let's go to Romans 4. This word appears a lot in Romans 4. It appears in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. And then it doesn't appear in verse 7. And then it appears in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. And verses 22, 23, 24, just like you see on your notes there. Quite a few times... And people oftentimes, they, they look at the word impute, they automatically think the Calvinistic understanding of the word impute means transfer. But I have yet to find one uh, Greek lexicon or Greek dictionary that gives that as a possible definition of the Greek word legizomai. This is translated as impute. I can't find one. And in fact, as I go through every instance of this word, it's never used in that way either. Now, people will read Romans 4, and you can see it appears a lot of times in Romans 4. This is the main passage for this word. They read, transfer into it. And so, as we read through Romans 4, we'll start in verse 3, uh, and we'll read through uh, verse 11, just to start out with here. I want you to think about the word impute. And I'm going to give you a definition from the Greek lexicon. To be looked upon as... To be regarded as or hold against. So when the Bible says does not impute, it means does not hold against. Okay? Or does not look upon as or does not regard as. So consider as, account, reckon, impute, to look upon as, to be regarded as, to hold against. When we go through this, I want you to think about. In your mind, as I re- every time I read the word account, or counted as, or impute, I want you to think about what would transfer make sense there? Or does this definition, which is really the definition it should have, does that make more sense? And what doctrine do we come away with from this? So let's look at it. For what does the scripture say? This is verse 3, Romans 4. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him 
for righteousness. That's the first uh, time Legizomai shows up and accounted. So he believed God and it was transferred to him for righteousness. Does that make sense? What is being transferred here? His belief is being transferred as righteousness? He's accounted to him. He's considered as if he's righteous. Uh, he's uh, looked upon as righteous. That's what we see here. In verse 4. For to him who works, the wages are not counted. There's the word uh, counted there. That's the word legizomai. Not counted as grace, but as debt. So if you work, the what you work, the wages are not counted or not uh, considered as grace, but as debt. They're not uh, looked upon as grace, but as debt. And let's face it, we you know we owe a debt to God. We owe Him our whole life, and we should be working for Him. Hey, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. There's that word again, accounted. Is his faith transferred for righteousness? No. His faith is not transferred. It is considered... His faith, because of his faith, he's considered as if he is righteous. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, there's the word again, legizomai, righteousness apart from works. So this, this pe- people who are, who are Calvinists and all different persuasions of that, they'll look at verse 6. They're not looking at the other verses that, that talk about this word impute. And they look at verse 6 and say, well, just as David also describes the blessings of the man who God transferred righteousness apart from works. And so listen, if you say we have to be obedient at all to God, that's work salvation, see? We're considered righteous uh, apart from works. But uh, God is considering us as righteous the moment of faith. Of course, it has to be a certain kind of faith, right? It can't be an antinomian faith. It can't be a faith that doesn't work, according to James 2, that doesn't produce works, doesn't produce righteousness. That's a dead faith, right? That doesn't save somebody. So we're considered as righteous apart from works by faith, sanctified by faith, as Ephesians 15, uh, Acts 15 says. Now let's look at the quote that he's talking about from David in verses 7 or 8 of Romans 4. Let's see all these, lots of different words in here. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David is making synonymous the same thing, being forgiven of lawless deeds and the Lord not imputing sin. Okay, so let's go down to forgiveness again, the second, the last word on your list there. Okay. And the second word is the one being used here. Aphiemi. Aphiemi. To release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. That's what forgiveness means. To release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. Taking away the consequences of sin. So because of your faith, Abraham had faith in God. That faith led to obedience, of course. God said, uh, go here, and he did it. God said, uh, you know, go take your son, and he did it. Go to this land where I'm going to show you that you do not own right now, but your descendants will possess, or your seed will possess it. And God considered him as if he was righteous because he did that. Okay, so we see here that impute, the Lord did not uh, hold sin against him in the end of verse 8. 
Blessed a man to whom the Lord shall not hold sin against. And verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawsies are forgiven, who uh, God has taken away the consequences or the legal or moral obligation of sin. He's released them from that. You can see why forgiveness and impute are used in synonymous ways here in these two verses. That if you, if you take the word impute out and make it transfer, it doesn't make any sense at all. But this is what people have been taught. And they just blindly receive it and believe it. Let's go to verse 9. But does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, talking about the Jews, or upon the uncircumcised, the Gentiles also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. There's that word impute there, legismai, accounted to Abraham for righteousness, and was faith there. But how then was it legismai? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteous may be imputed to them also. And so he's, you know, he's talking about Jewish people here who have this high mindset about themselves that only if you're a Jew, only if you follow the Jewish law, only if you're circumcised can you be a part of this faith of Abraham. But Paul brings up the, the very good point here that Abraham was counted a righteous before the law of Moses, before the sign of circumcision was given to Abraham. He was accounted as righteous. And that's because Abraham is the father of the faith of all people who walk in the faith of Abraham. Not just the Jewish people, but the Jewish people and the Gentiles who will walk in the same faith as him. They'll be accounted as if they're righteous. Their sin will not be held against them any longer. They'll be forgiven of their sins. All right, let's go to a couple other ones here. We'll finish up Romans 4 here. We're done with that. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.19. Which we just read a second. It says, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, making, taking them from enemies and making them friends, not, cons- not counting their trespasses to them. And has committed to us the word of be friends with God instead of his enemy. The word of reconciliation. Now, can, can someone be God's friend if they continue to do things that make him angry? Can, can people be God's friend if they do the very things that God sent his son to free them from? In Hebrews 1.9 says that God, that Christ loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And if people refuse to engage in the things that God, that Christ loves, and they continue to engage in the, thing, the very things that God hates, how can they say that He's their Lord? How can they say that He's their friend, that they're His friend? I mean, would you, I mean just look at a natural sense. If someone, a human being, was saying you're their friend, and they kept on doing things that made you angry, would you really consider them your friend? But if they came to you and said, you know what, I know I've done things that make you angry, I'm sorry for that, I'm not going to do it any longer. Now, could you be friends with them? Yeah, now you could. That's what what Christ, one of the purposes of Christ's death on the cross was to influence you, to change you, to make you a different person, a new creature in Christ, that you would stop doing those things. 
Okay, let's let, let's look at some other things that Romans two twenty six here that uh, I want to impose the word transfer upon that where the word impute appears and see if it makes sense. This, this word is used a lot for a lot of different reasons. I'm just giving you some of the verses here, but it, it, it's kind of you know one of the ways you reduce someone's position to absurdity and show them that it's wrong is to kind of make fun of it a little bit. I guess you could say. Uh, so Romans two twenty six says, uh, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, a Gentile now, he's keeping the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be transferred or circumcision? Does that make any sense? How can someone who's uncircumcised be transferred? Now, are they transferring circumcision between people now as well? No, but he's considered if he is circumcised because he's a part of the commonwealth of Israel now. He's a part of that... Uh, that olive tree, and he was grafted into it. As he says later in Romans, in Romans 11. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 4.16. Another use of legizomai. You know, making fun of it, you're kind of just showing them how absurd their position is to use that word in such a way. And if they are not willing to agree that it can be used that way in these verses, they, it should cause them to forsake that usage in other verses as well. It should show them how absurd it is, reducing them to absurdity. It says in verse uh, 16 of 2 Timothy 4, it says, At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be transferred to them. No, may it not be held against them. They're, they're forsaking of him. May it not be held against them uh, for their sin against him. Okay, propitiation, Romans 3.25. It's another big uh, word that Calvinists love to throw around to supposedly support their doctrine that uh, you know God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. You'll hear some of the famous Calvinists preach it passionately in videos on YouTube. And, uh, but what what they say it means, it doesn't mean. Uh, now, last week I told you that here in verse 25, propitiation could literally be transferred as mercy seat. Right? Mercy seat. Uh, it's the same word used for mercy seat in the Greek... Old Testament. And so we see here, it says, whom God sent forth, talking about Jesus, as a mercy seat, as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Talking about the, the saints of the Old Testament. He passed over those things. Because Christ hadn't come yet. So propitiation means the initiative taken by God to effect removal of impediments to a relationship with God's self. The initiative taken by God to effect removal of impediments to a relationship with God's self. Now, you can see why, according to their theory of the atonement, that God is the one who needs to be changed, not man. Man doesn't need to be changed. God needs to be changed. God's the angry one. Man's the sinner. He's going to stay a sinner the rest of his life, so he's not going to change. God needs to change. And therefore, what is the impediment to a right relationship with God? It's God's wrath. And so they'll say, well, the, the impediment removed here is that uh, God poured out his wrath on the Son, on the cross. But the impediment is not God's wrath. The impediment is the sinner and his sin. And so the impediment removed is the sinner's sin through forgiveness 
Remember, it's, it's not held against him any longer through imputation, not held against him any longer. And through changing the sinner from a sinner into a saint. That's propitiation. That's the whole point of Christ being a propitiation, by being a mercy seat. And think about it, every, every time the Israelites in the Old Testament they had to bring forth their land, the, the best ones, the young ones, without, land, without spot, without blemish, it cost them something every time. Do you think they wanted to keep on sinning? And that's one of the whole purposes of discipline, right? Discipline your child, you're trying to motivate them, you're trying to, uh, you know, trying to push them right and say, listen, spank, 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 don't do that anymore. Right? It cost you something. And this cost God something. And because it cost God something, it should, it should influence you to stop it. This mercy, this propitiation that God sent, His name is Christ. And in Hebrews 9.5, And here we see it is, and this is Paul talking about, the writer of Hebrews talking about the old, the sanctuary. It says, and above it, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, There's and it's pronounced holasterion. Okay, that's how that word's pronounced. With an H sound, because there's a rough breathing mark above the eye, curving to the right. Rough R right. Holasterion. So, this is the initiative, because who, who took the initiative to create the ark? Who gave the descriptions of the ark, what, how it should be made? God did. God told them to make it this way, this is where the mercy is going to be. So God took the initiative, <clears throat> he gave them the laws, the sacrificial laws, he took the initiative again through Jesus Christ. He sent Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave you know, his only begotten son. So he took the initiative to do these things. Okay, let's look at a little bit more about forgiveness here. Ephesus. The noun, the first word there. Let's look at Matthew twenty six twenty eight, and we can see some other examples here of what this word means. Remember, it means the act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. So Matthew twenty six twenty eight, Jesus said, "For this is my blood." What does that mean? This is my life. Of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or forgiveness, these are synonymous words, remission or forgiveness of sins. So his blood, his life was given that uh, people could be freed from their obligation, their guilt, and their punishment for their sins. And we talked about this last week, how people have this idea that I'm forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future. Now, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to forgive you every sin you ever have committed or that you might commit in the future. But it's not a it's not a automatic thing. Um, but uh, it was shed for the many for the remission, for the the uh, canceling, the freeing from guilt or obligation to your sin. It was not cast into the sea of forgetfulness, as if God is no longer omniscient. And let's go to Matthew 18. Let's refresh ourselves here. This is the, the other word for forgiveness will be used here. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, we see in this parable that, well, let's just read it. Let's uh, begin with verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which is equivalent to 15,000 years worth of wages. He's never going to pay it back. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Yeah, right. Really? There's no lottery back then. There's no Powerball back then to win that from. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Uh, that's that's where he's uh, being forgiven. It's being canceled, being pardoned of that debt. Did someone else come in and pay it? No, just pardoned. He was pardoned of that debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a hundred days of wages. Okay, so you're comparing fifteen thousand years to a hundred days. Very small, and that's you know that's how we should always view our brothers and sisters. You know, when if they were to wrong us in some way. We've got to look at our own sin and see how much we've sinned against God first. And when we have that perspective, we'll be so quick to forgive. So quick. Not hold grudges, not be bitter, just quick to forgive. Because we have that right perspective upon you know, what someone might do wrong to us. You know, otherwise, we're, we're kind of almost being like this guy. So a hundred denarii, and he, had, he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not have patience with him, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told the master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. I pardoned you. I remitted all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So, talking to the disciples now, Jesus says, My heavenly Father also will do to each of you, who from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass, not release him of his trespasses, or pardon him, cancel it out of his trespasses. And so we see here conditions that you know, these are disciples he's talking to. Certainly, if they would have died at this point in time, they'd have been right with God. Maybe except for Judas at this point. They'd have been right with God. And he said, listen, if you don't forgive your brothers, that's going to be taken away. Just like he was taken. It'd be taken away. That pardon, that release, that forgiveness is taken away. Just like that. Luke 24, 27. 24, 47. Christ is giving them the admonition of what they need to preach, starting verse 46. Then Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now when you see the word remission or forgiveness, I want you to picture Matthew 18. That through God's compassion... Now, obviously, Matthew 18 doesn't discuss the atonement. doesn't discuss what Christ did. There's no substitution there. But that Christ, God, is willing to forgive and remit your sins. But those sins can come back on your account again. And be, you can be thrown in prison to the torturers and be held accountable for all that you have done. 
Not just what you've been done since then, but all that you've done. Okay, let's go to uh, Acts 26.18. This is Paul recounting his conversion experience on the road to Damascus and what what Jesus said to him. So to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Okay, then for the second word here for forgiveness of me, let's just look at some other ways it's used here to show that it's a releasing, it's a letting go of, it's a forgiving of, a remitting, a pardon. We see in Ephesians, Matthew 4.11, this is Jesus in the uh, uh, being baptized here. Okay, Matthew 4.11. The devil is uh, tempting here. It says, Then the devil left him, Behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now the word left there, left him, is the word that is translated as forgiveness. So it left. It's separated from you. Okay? And then in Matthew uh, 4.20, it says, uh, talking about the disciples who he called, he says, they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now their nets are still there, right? But they left them. Just like your sin is still there, but God left it. He's not holding against you any longer. And then we see in verse 22, and immediately left their boat and their father. Their boat and their father didn't disappear. They were still there. But they left the boat and their father. It's like a Christian, when becomes a Christian, they leave their sin, and God leaves it alone, doesn't hold it against them any longer. Okay? And then in Matthew 6, in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then in verses 14 and 15, very similar to Matthew 18, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, and I'll let you look at the rest of these verses on these lists uh, in your own time, if you want to. Just lay those things out. So just a review here, we see that in Ransom, that we see the price of the release, which is Christ's life. We see that it's an instead of, it's in behalf of, it's a in place of thing. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. So if someone tells you because you don't believe that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, that you don't believe that view of atonement, that you don't believe in a substitutionary atonement, you can tell them they're lying about you. I just don't believe in your version of the atonement, which is not biblical. But I do believe in a substitutionary atonement. That's what antilutron means, the second word for ransom there. That Christ was a meteor who came between two parties to solve the problem between them. Uh, that he uh, releases, he redeems, he delivers from a captive condition. He acquits. From a, a, he liberates from an oppressive situation. He secures the deliverance of. He liberates. Um, he reestablishes an interrupted or broken relation between s- sinners and God. Uh, there's an exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. Uh, that he secures the rights of people who come to him, 
by paying the price of his life. He acquires them as property. Uh, that he gains possession of them. And they become God's own possession. That because of these things, we're looked upon as, regarded as, and held as if we are righteous. Even though we have sin on our record. That Christ, as a propitiation, as a mercy seat, he was the initiative taken by God to effect the removal of impediments to a right relationship with God, which is removing of sin and changing the sinner from a sinner to a saint. And that in forgiveness, our sins are no longer being held against us, but they can in the future, if we go back to our sins, be held against us again. And so from these words, and we're going to look at other words uh, next week, we'll look at uh, words like, um, let's see here, uh, we'll look at purge next week. We'll look at purify and cleanse. We'll look at curse, sanctify. Look at some of those words next week. Um, but hopefully you can see as we look at these different words that have to do with the atonement, how we can formulate a proper doctrine of the atonement from the scriptures itself and the scriptures alone. Not from traditions of men. Not from improperly defining biblical words. But defining them properly, and we come away with a, you know, a, a right view of the atonement. Okay, let's open for discussion, or if you want to add something, or if you have questions. Yes, Josh. Um, I was wondering if you could. Uh, I was wondering if you could um, say the definition for parapoyas. Okay. That's the second word on the purchased. Parapoiesis. Mm -hmm. uh, that which is acquired, possessing, property. A people that has become God's own possession. That's why it's translated as purchased possession. Who else? Anybody? Um, you were saying that I think Second Peter chapter two in, in Second Peter chapter two uh, <coughs> about the false teachers hmm? having been bought. Hmm? Uh, so at some point they would have been saved and, and then endangered their salvation through the false teachers. Well, either that, either that, or it's simply just talking about the extent of the atonement. Okay. But either way, someone who believes in the limit atonement, they have to deal with that. Whether they once were saved or not, it doesn't really say there, but he did buy them. His atonement was there to buy them, just like it's there to buy everybody. Right. Yeah. Only <laughs> well, only efficient for those who repent, trust in Christ, and continue to live in the, yeah. in the faith, yeah. And, uh... So the atonement as a substitute, what would you say the atonement substitutes? It substitutes sinners going to hell. And um, as we, as I said, it's not a exact substitute because if it was exact, he would have, and this is where the 
penal substitution view comes in, Christ would have had to have taken the wrath of God, at least for those who would be saved. Okay, uh, but he's a substitute in that he uh, he gave his life in place of our life uh, being sent to hell forever. So it's it's not an exact substitute, but it's a sufficient substitute in God's eyes, uh, obviously because he received it like that. So really, then we believe in a in a greater substitution than they do. They believe in a substitution in punishment, but you're saying it's a substitution for punishment. Mm-hmm. So it's Christ not only substitutes the sinner, like in their view, mm-hmm. but that his suffering on the cross substitutes our suffering in hell. Mm-hmm. And uh, his duration on the cross substitutes our eternity. So it's a, a threefold substitution where they only have one uh, substitution, just Christ with the sinner. And that, but he received everything that we would have received, so there's no further substitution. Right. So we have a we have an even greater substitutionary atonement. There's mm-hmm. more of a substitution. Amen. That's good. Yeah. Anybody else? You were saying that <clears throat> that Jesus is mediating between man and God mm-hmm. and reconciling men back to God. Right. Um, and we know that Jesus is God as well, mm-hmm. so how how does that, uh, I mean, I always thought, well, Jesus is mediating back to God the Father, mm-hmm. but Jesus, he's also reconciling mankind back to the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. No, most times when you see the word God in the New Testament, it's, it's referring to the Father. Okay. Yeah, so it's, that's, that's what it's referring to there, obviously. Yeah. And, and if a person's reconciled to the Father, obviously they'll be reconciled to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they weren't reconciled to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wouldn't go inside of them. If they weren't reconciled to the Son, he wouldn't he wouldn't call them his brothers, which is in Hebrews. Yeah. But obviously in first Timothy two, five and six is talking about God the Father. That's what it's referring to there. When uh, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, yep. would that be uh, equivalent to saying forgives? Yep. It kind of sets aside. Yep. Yeah. Taking it away, that's that's exactly what forgiveness means. Taking away the punishment or the obligation, uh, the consequences of it. So, And that's he's really just referring to you know, the, the scapegoat. That's what the Jews would have understood from that. Uh, and what would have been revolutionary for them is that not just taking away the sins of the congregation of Israel, the sins of the world. You know, it's, it's expanding now. And, you know, that's, that seems to be like one of the first things in the New Testament that God used to try to help expand the Jewish people's mind that it wasn't just about them anymore, that it's about the whole world, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's conditional. takes away, because that, that, that could be used, like you said, Rob Bell uses the Second Corinthians 5, or sure. could use that to say it's universal takes away the sins of the world. Right, I mean, and when it came to even the scapegoat in Old Testament, it's only those who repented who are actually taking the benefits of that. Because they're, you know, and all throughout the Old Testament, God says, I do not desire your sacrifices. And uh, he says in Isaiah 64, 6, and people like to use this to say we can't live holy, but it says uh, all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And it's talking about the sacrifice. That these, these are righteous things that God said. You need to do these things. You need to make sacrifices. You need to you know, do all the different things I told you to do throughout the law. But they were 
filthy rags to him because they were still sinning. They, had, they weren't repenting. It wasn't bringing about the, the, what he was wanting to bring about through the atonement. That's why you see on the day of atonement it says to uh, afflict your souls. But if you weren't afflicting your soul, guess what? The atonement does not help you at all. It doesn't help you at all. Repentance. Yeah. Yeah, godly sorrow. And, uh, you know, if, if that kind of stuff, I mean, we see in the Old Testament it was costing people stuff by giving their animals, but now it costs God his only son. If that doesn't motivate your influence, you're hopeless. It's the greatest influence in the world to live holy. The greatest influence in the world to give up your sin and follow Christ. Behold the Lamb. Yeah. It's good that we understand these things. These words, I think, oftentimes become Christianized to some degree, and then we don't really even understand what we're only saying ourselves, even ourselves. And when we speak these words in the open air, we need to be able to make sure we can make them understandable for people who are listening so they can understand what God requires and what will happen to them and what God did at the cross. And it becomes more understandable for them so they know what they need to do and what is required of them. Oh yeah. Amen. Yeah, I would I would encourage uh, open air preachers and street evangelists here, or people who are just witnessing one to one, to memorize a lot of these verses that are talking about the atonement. It is the greatest thing you can preach about. I, I strive to memorize more verses with these things. You know, we all have the, the typical verses that open air preachers have memorized, you know, the ones about sin and judgment and hell. And But what about the ones about the cross? How many of those do you have memorized? How many of those are you quoting in your preaching? How many of those are you sharing and you're witnessing? And these, these are the most important. It is, I mean, obviously people need to understand what their problem is and what danger they're in, but they also need to understand the solution to the problem and you need to communicate that effectively to them. Anybody else? Yeah, sure. Don't, don't apologize. <clears throat> so, before the atonement, the Jews were looking uh, were, uh, under these shadows of the sacrificial system. Mm-hmm. What about the Gentiles? We always hear that in the open air. What about the Gentiles who weren't under that sacrificial system? Are you saying that, that no Gentiles were saved before the atonement price? Well, there were Gentiles who joined the congregation of Israel, and there were, there were provisions for that. Um, you know, ultimately, you're asking me a question that I can't answer because I don't know the heart of every Gentile before them. But if they had a heart right with God, if they obeyed their conscience, you know, I think Romans 2.15 applies to them. These are people who, if they obeyed, you know, we, I just read it today, the righteous requirements of the law will not be, you know, considered as if they were circumcised. That's what Romans uh, 2 refers to. And, um, you know, God, God, even in the Old Testament, before Christ came, he desired the salvation of all. And Ezekiel 18 makes it clear he wanted all to be saved. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. So uh, they were just his chosen people. To, he gave these things to them, and the Messiah came through them. It doesn't mean he wasn't reaching out to other people. But we don't have all of history contained in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you know, after uh, Genesis, we mostly only have the Jewish history of that point in time. We have a little bit of history of the people who interacted with the Jewish people, but we don't have the history of the Native American Indians. We don't have the history of the the uh, the people in, in Central America and South America, but I'll tell you, if you want, I've, I've mentioned this book before, if you want to know more about that, there's a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. I would really recommend you, you, you read that book, because it'll give you an understanding of how God was reaching out to people who had no knowledge of the Scriptures, no knowledge of the Bible, or the Old Testament, or the Jewish people, 
And he was reaching them. And they understood a lot more. And they were monotheistic by nature. They weren't polytheistic. They were monotheistic. They believed in one God. And it's just full of stories where these things are happening. So I, I believe God was still saving people. And Well, I mean, yeah, they're supposed to be a blessing to all nations. The children of Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. So they, they you know, and, and Jesus did say, you, you go out and make uh, converts or twice the sons of hell of you. So obviously some of them were going out. But some Jews had the wrong mindset. I mean, we, we see Paul addressing this over and over again. But obviously they were addressing, they were going out because Paul was, I mean, people would go out behind Paul and say, you must be circumcised to be saved. You know, so there were people going out. That's beside the point. God was still reaching people, even without the Jews in the picture. People who the Jews could not reach, he was reaching out to them. And so, it, it, same with the people in, uh, before who didn't know about Christ. If they had no knowledge of Christ, if they were living for the one true God, and this is before Christ came, God would give them more knowledge. They could understand it completely at that point, as much as they could understand, and then he, he'd still save them through the knowledge they had. Well, he's the father of the Jews. Well, the word Jew comes from Judah, the tribe of Israel. And uh, so really a, a, a better word would be Israelites, but Israel is a name for Jacob, who was the grandson you know, of Abraham. So um, obviously there's people... You know, we look at Abel. You know, he, I mean, he didn't really. How much did he know about the Messiah? How much did he know about Jesus? He had very limited in understanding and knowledge. How much did Noah know? But Noah got the boat and offered a sacrifice. You know, so God's going to judge people throughout history according to knowledge. And oftentimes, I find, John, people give those objections to the open air. It's really they're just trying to catch you, and really it has nothing to do with them, because you know, you turn around and say, "Listen, you're hearing the truth right now." Uh, we can't change the past, and, and God is merciful, and He is, and He is, uh, you know, He's He loves everyone, and He wants all to be saved. So, based upon those facts, God's going to deal justly with those people from the past, and but He's going to deal justly with you too. And you know right from wrong. You've heard the gospel of Christ, and you need to repent. You know, so you always kind of want to turn it back around to help them understand these things. But yeah, Romans three twenty five is that that's what it's referring to there about. Passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. You might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And next week we're probably going to Hebrews a little more deeper, a little deeper, uh, where it talks about how animal sacrifices were not good enough. Just shadows. You know, so even for the Jewish people, the sacrificial system is simply a shadow to point to Christ. And those things couldn't forgive them. No. Faith in the one true God, yeah. they're considered as righteous. Yeah. Of course, that faith produces works, just like it did with Abraham. It produced works and holiness. And it, if they sin, they can go back to God again and get forgiveness. So we have greater knowledge, so we should be greater faith works of faith. Yeah. I mean, if Abraham... With no Bible, I mean, obviously he heard from God. He had no Bible, no Holy Spirit living inside of him, no uh, no Bible teachers, no no church. You know, he, he, God said, "Go here," and he did it. 
Did he ask questions? He just did it. And God provided along the way. He provided everything he needed because he stepped out of the face and said, you go here. And he said, okay, I'll go there, God. You see? So it wasn't just him saying, okay, God, I believe you. And then he just stayed in the same spot. He left everything. His, everyone he knew. And in fact, he, he took his dad with him the first and his dad died. You know, on the way. He left everything. He, I think he took, his, he took his nephew with him a lot, but everything he knew, he left behind for the sake of God, because God called him to.